morning from the Financial Times. Today is Tuesday, March 22nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. Russia stepped up its invasion of Ukraine yesterday. The battle for the port city of Mariupol continued, and a Russian airstrike targeted a shopping mall in Kiev, killing at least eight people, according to Ukrainian officials. Meanwhile, in Moscow, Russian bonds traded for the first time since Putin's invasion. Western companies have been announcing plans to leave Russia, but the FT's Leila Aboud reports on consumer goods companies who are staying. At least for now, because they have a lot of factories there and a lot of employees. It's not actually that simple to just sort of declare that you're just going to close that down. We'll also hear about the challenges facing Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan. I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Bond trading resumed in Moscow yesterday for the first time since Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And prices on local currency bonds dropped. Yields on the benchmark 10-year ruble bond climbed as high as 19.7%. That was in pre-market trading. Yields settled back to just under 14%. Meanwhile, the U.S. government bond market is having its worst month since 2016. Bond prices have dropped and the yield on the benchmark 10-year treasury reached 2.3%. But now, the trigger for falling bonds is persistent high inflation, made worse by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yesterday, Fed Chair Jay Powell said the Fed is prepared to act more aggressively if necessary to tackle inflation. Traders are betting the Fed will lift interest rates above 2% by the end of the year. We've been reporting on the exodus of Western companies out of Russia, but many Western companies have chosen to stay. The Swiss food group Nestle recently defended its decision to keep doing business in Russia, and that's despite direct appeals by the president of Ukraine. To talk more about this, I'm joined by our Paris correspondent, Leila Aboud. Hi, Leila. Hello. So, Leila, Ukrainian leaders targeted Nestle and called on them to divest from Russia. What's their argument to Nestle executives? Well, to be fair, the Ukrainian leaders, including the President Zelensky, has actually targeted a bunch of companies lately. They've really kind of turned up the volume on calling out specific companies by name um, who are choosing to stay in Russia. They did, were doing it a little bit a few weeks ago, but now it's really picked up, I think, in volume in the past week or so. Zelensky called out Nestle in a speech, a sort of video link speech he gave to protesters who were gathered in, in the Swiss city of Bern over the weekend. And, you know, he cited Nestle as uh, an example of a company that wasn't living up to the values that it supposedly has by staying in Russia and, you know, uses very strong language to kind of condemn companies who choose to say is, quote, financing the Russian uh, military machine. I imagine it must have made some people quite uncomfortable in Nestle headquarters to hear that uh, over the weekend. So Russia isn't a huge market for Nestle, so it wouldn't be a huge hit to their business. How do they justify their decision to stay? So it's not a big market for them. They earn about what they say is just under 2% of their uh, annual revenue in Russia. And I would imagine that the amount of headaches, logistical, just, you know, for their staff and just sort of overall difficulty of staying in is probably quite real right now. But I have to say that I, I when a lot of the companies that have chosen to stay in will will say that they, you know, in part are doing so because they have a big Russian staff and feel somewhat responsible for them. That's a legitimate thing uh, for them to take into account. If you have 7,000 employees in Russia, 
I mean, what are you going to do? Just throw them out from one day to the next? I mean, the, the Russian uh, government has sort of made threats of reappropriating assets for companies that idle their factories or say that they're quote unquote pausing operations in Russia. They've threatened that they would just kind of like take those factories. So maybe they, maybe Nestle is also thinking that they should just keep things running in order to uh, avoid that sort of thing. But overall, I mean, I think people sort of forget this, but Russia is actually not that big of an economy. It's about the size of Italy's economy. So there aren't a lot of companies that make so much money there that leaving would be catastrophic. It's just more that I think there's a, there's a level of complexity in leaving uh, or shutting down a business, which maybe has been there for decades and has thousands of employees. It's not just as easy as kind of putting out an angry tweet and, and moving on. So what about the risks of staying? How might executives of a Western consumer goods company weigh the risks of staying with those of leaving? I imagine that's what the board of Nestle has to examine on an ongoing basis. Um, but I would say that the things that consumer goods companies, uh, the whole the whole game is in the name, right? They serve consumers. And what people think of their brands is very important. So it can seem somewhat perplexing that they would sort of choose to stay in Russia when the potential damage to their brands from consumers elsewhere in the world who really are kind of outraged about what's happening there, you know, could be much bigger. Uh, but I also think we need to be a little bit honest about what's happening now is pretty rare to have business be hit by a shock and then suddenly have to figure out what they're going to do. So to some degree, the fact that it would take companies some time to figure out what they want to do and that they all don't make the same decision is probably somewhat to be expected. That's the FT's Paris correspondent, Leila Aboud. Pakistan's prime minister found himself in the international spotlight last month. Imran Khan went to Moscow for a historic trip and was there the day Russia invaded Ukraine. Not a good time to be shaking hands with Putin, at least from a Western perspective. Khan's subsequent decision to remain neutral on Russia's invasion put him in a tricky spot abroad. While at home, he faces a nation crippled by inflation. And he's facing a no-confidence vote later this month over his handling of the economy. To talk more about this, I'm joined by the FT's South Asia correspondent, Ben Parkin. Hi, Ben. Hi, Jonah. So, Ben, there was such high hopes for Imran Khan, the sports star, the outsider who promised to clamp down on corruption and fix the economy. How difficult a situation is he in now? It's the toughest of his political career so far, without a doubt. The economy is in really tough shape. Inflation is a huge problem. It's well into double digits. And it's really painful for Pakistanis who, you know, already have been through the COVID-19 pandemic and being a lower middle income country. It's been really devastating for a lot of people. His anti-corruption campaign hasn't had the results that his supporters were expecting and there's also been some talk of uh, rifts between him and the military, which could put him even in an even more vulnerable position. I want to go back to inflation. How bad is it, the prices? How much is it affecting Pakistan's people? It's some of the worst inflation in Asia. The so-called sensitive price index, which tracks certain daily essentials, food, soap, fuel has risen uh, 15% in the past week for, compared to a year earlier. This started before the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, but that's only made it worse, right? The surge in energy prices. Speaking of energy, let's talk about Khan's trip to Moscow. One of the reasons for the trip was to finalize an agreement to bring Russian gas into Pakistan. Is that a done deal? So yeah, Khan went to Moscow on a 
historic visit and was really designed to signal a new friendship and partnership between Russia and Pakistan. And the pipeline was an important part of that, the Pakistan Stream Pipeline, or also known as the North-South Pipeline, which was designed to carry, it was going to be built by Russian companies, partly owned by Russia, and designed to carry gas into the uh, southern port Karachi up to the north. So Khan went to Moscow and there was a lot of talk that he would finalize the pipeline while he was there. That didn't happen. But the government has insisted that it's still going ahead and they're really determined to get it done quickly. And they're even talking about senior Russian officials visiting Pakistan in the not too distant future to get it over the line. So we'll have to see whether that happens or not. So what are the politics of this pipeline? And is Khan under criticism for this deal with Moscow? Well, so Khan has made standing up to US and Europe, Pakistan's sort of historic partners, he's made that a big part of his image. And he's sought to correct what he and others see as an over-reliance on the West. And building closer ties with Russia is seen as part of that. So there's a lot of support for it. But in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's also been very controversial because Pakistan is really dependent on trade with Europe and his stance on um, Russia and his neutrality really irked a lot of people in Europe and so on who called on Pakistan to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the UN, which they didn't do. And Khan responded by attacking Europe and others at a rally and asking whether they assume that Pakistanis were their slaves. So that plays well to his base, but there are a lot of people who who are concerned that there's a real economic and political cost to that that could damage relations in the longer term. That's the FT's South Asia correspondent, Ben Parkin. Before we go, here's the latest count on refugees from the war in Ukraine. Russia's invasion has forced as many as 10 million people from their homes, according to the UN. About a third of those have fled to neighboring countries like Poland. Moldova has received the most refugees per capita. Yesterday, Moldova's foreign minister told the FT that the influx could destabilize the country. You can read more about all these stories at FT.com. If you aren't a subscriber yet, you can read our key Ukraine coverage for free. Just visit ft.com slash free to read. Again, that's ft.com slash free to read. We also have a link to that in the show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, 
edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustolium.